What is the response of the false convert in verse 22? It's look at all this stuff I did. Look at all these things that I have accrued. Look at the prophecies and the demons and the mighty works. Not one of them is appealing to the work of Christ. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity that we can gather, that we can gather together as your ecclesia, as your called out ones. Lord, I pray as we approach the text this morning that our hearts would be fertile ground for the seed of your word. Lord, I pray that we would not be mere hearers, Lord, but we would be doers, that we would take action, that your word would cause a correction where there needs to be one in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've given us your word, that you've not left us high and dry. And also, Lord, we thank you for solid biblical teaching that this church has produced. We thank you for Pastor Micah, who has proved himself to be a faithful shepherd, Lord, not a hireling who abandons his flock, nor a wolf who feeds on his flock. No, Lord, he is a good shepherd who cares for us, and we thank you for him and his ministry, that he's blessed all of us. So, Lord, as we walk through this text, illuminate to us the things that you would have for us. Convict those that need to be convicted. Comfort those that need comfort. Move to action those who are sloth in their zeal. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I've titled our teaching for this morning, False Prophets and False Converts. We have a very simple outline. The uh, text seems to give way very cleanly to verses 15 through 20 being false prophets slash teachers and verses 21 through 23. And as we walk through the text this morning, we're going to make some general observations. We are going to ask some questions about what Jesus' intent is here for his listeners. And once we deal with the theology of the passage, we are then going to move to application. And we have three points with some subpoints in there, but I hope you will find it beneficial. And this is honestly a very interesting and intriguing passage for us to be walking through. The false teacher, the false convert. The opposite then that would be that there are true teachers and there are true converts. We're not going to be looking so much at that aspect of the the message today, but we are going to hone in on the falseness, the incorrectness of these teachers, of these converts, the error that they make. Our Lord gives us an exhortation to start verse 15. He says, beware, beware. He commands us to be alert, to be awake. Something that ought to grab our attention. The Greek here, it's to be in a continuous state of readiness, to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. It's this idea of preparation of having your eyes open to what is actually going on, not what you wish were happening. And there's no doubt that the Christian life is a life 
of alertness, of sobriety. There's many times where we are commanded in scripture to be ready, either to be to give the word in season or out of season, or perhaps to give an apologetus, a defense for the word, for the reason of the hope that is within you, for those that might ask you. The Christian life is not that of slackness. It's not that of ease. And my fear is that so many have shipwrecked their faith due to a lack of awareness. They think the Christian life is supposed to be that of ease, of carelessness, of provision. They think that it does not require anything but simple, easy believing, some simple church attendance. But the fact of the matter is that the shipwrecked faith is actually no faith at all. And the lax Christian is in a rather precarious and dangerous position. There's no doubt that there are many obstacles to be aware of in the Christian life, temptations that seem to be lurking around every corner. Our adversary, the devil, who roams this earth seeking whom he may devour. An internal enemy, our own flesh, and our bent desires that so often and readily lead us away from Christ. Unbelievers who would love nothing more than to see us trip and to fall, and those that are outright hostile that would seek to snuff out the flame of the gospel. You and I have many things to be aware of in the Christian life. And I believe this is why Paul in Ephesians calls us to not be drunk with wine, but to be sober, to be ready, to be clear-headed, to have our eyes open, to be awake, because there are indeed adversaries that we must face. But going back to our text, what is Jesus warning of that we should be aware of? Specifically here, he is warning us against false prophets or false teachers. A false prophet or a false teacher, they are those that are out there who would claim to serve our Lord. They would claim to serve the divine. And yet, this is not the case. They claim to maybe have special revelation from God or a special and secret text, some secret insight that you ought to bend your ear to. But ultimately, they are false. They are not true. They are not walking in what the Lord has revealed, nor are they serving him. And in fact, they would claim that they want your good, that they have your best interest at heart. This is why they're sharing this type of information with you. However, as we are going to see, they are wicked. They are twisted men and women who use the faith or the faith of others as an opportunity to indulge their own sin at their listeners' expense. Scripture is full of examples of the false prophet or the false teacher. I think of Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. For those of you that don't know the story, the king of a nation that was against Israel essentially hired God's prophet, which is mind-boggling, but he hired this man to essentially prophesy against Israel for him. And he said that, no, I, I, I can only say what the Lord gives me. 
So they go, there's kind of a humorous back and forth. There's a talking donkey. There's some pretty miraculous stuff that ends up happening. But the advice that Balaam ends up giving this king is slowly just give them some of the base desires that they want. Give them your women. Give them your culture. And eventually, they will fall. And we know this happened. Or perhaps we know the character Bar-Jesus in Acts 13, the magician, the sorcerer, who when Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel, saw his influence start to wane, his followers to decrease. And what did he end up trying to accomplish? He tried to get them executed. He tried to get them thrown out of the city to start a riot because his livelihood was threatened. Or perhaps in the gospel we see probably one of the most famous examples of false teachers, the Pharisees, who Christ has been rebuking time after time after time in the Sermon on the Mount and for right reasons. They were those that would lay heavy burdens upon their hearers, that they would strand a little gnat but then swallow a whole camel, completely missing the point of what they were teaching. They were blind teachers leading those who are blind. What about some modern day examples of false teachers? Well, one that comes to mind immediately is our good shiny friend, not really, Joel Osteen with his perfectly manicured and his glib smile that just kind of invites you in and his soft demeanor. Well, now, welcome to, welcome to our church. And his attendance is packed And on the surface, if you would ask him questions, he might seem to be in agreement with us. You ask about the person of Christ, the Trinity, the Bible. But then when you start getting deeper and start asking further questions, you'll find that, well, Jesus was maybe just a good teacher. Maybe he wasn't the only way. Well, I I don't know if people are that bad. I don't know if sin's really that big of a deal. You'll hear these things time and time again from his pulpit. And sadly, he has deceived thousands upon thousands. Another modern day example, the Pope. I would not want to be a Catholic right now with Francis in the position that he is in. And man, he is giving them an absolute loop. So if you have any Catholic friends, use this as an opportunity. This is a phenomenal opportunity that you can actually use as a gateway, as a doorway to start cracking the faith of them. We also have cults like Mormonism with Joseph Smith and his magical tablets that were specific languages of the angels and that only he could read and no one else could look at them. And he had all these crazy ideas that seemed absolutely wild. And now we have like entire states that are devoted to Mormonism. We need to be aware. We need to have an understanding of what types of men we are dealing with. So then how does the text then, how does Jesus describe these false prophets? He says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Some observations that I think are helpful here. The idea of them being in a sheep's uh, appearance, but really inwardly there's something completely different. I think our first observation is this, what Jesus is saying. They're predators. Well, what do predators do? Well, they seek to devour. They hunt. They stalk. 
They're bloodthirsty. They're threats. Though they present themselves in a meek and mild way, secretly though, they're looking for their next meal. Next, they're in disguise. Though they present themselves as harmless as one of you, in fact. I'm, I'm a sheep. Here I am. What they're doing, though, is they are lying. They are deceiving, and their true intentions are hidden. Though they may be smiling at you and gleaming towards you, but secretly behind their back, the dagger is ready. They remind me of the Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland. For those of you who know the story, he poses as a guide for Alice in the same way that these false teachers, they point themselves as a direction that you should follow, that they're leading the way that you ought to go. However, that path is nothing but filled with trouble and agony. And in this story, the Cheshire cat leads Alice to the queen of hearts. And this queen is a wicked and violent queen who's only restrained by her effeminate husband, the king of hearts. And long story short, they end up in a croquet match. I don't know how that happens, but there you go. And the Cheshire cat actually incriminates Alice and almost leads her to a beheading. This is exactly what the false teacher does. Presenting themselves as a guide and yet they lead only to death. Another observation, acting as a predator, they seek to separate you from the true fold. Notice how these false teachers present themselves to you as, as your kind, as a fellow Christian, as a fellow teacher, as one who would love the things of God. Though they may say things or act in ways that gets you to let your guard down. That's exactly what they're after. They want nothing more than to isolate you so they can devour you. And in many cults, there's a tactic called love bombing, which essentially is they find somebody who is maybe on the fringes, who's had a traumatic experience, who has strain in some relationships, and they just bomb this person with affection and care. Whatever this person needs, time, attention, resources, love, adoration, whatever it is. They just absolutely lay it on completely thick. And the goal is to start driving a wedge between that person and the true people in their lives who actually love them. Because now it starts this comparison game. Well, this, they're, they're telling me all these wonderful things and they're helping me in these ways and my, my own family won't even do that. What's the goal? It's to turn their prey against the one who loves them. However, once they accomplish this, the act often drops. Once the bridges have been burnt, once the individual has been separated, the accomplished task has been done. You're exactly where they want you. And many times, due to their twisted and perverse ways, they actually successfully brainwash their victims into thinking that they are benevolent. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who comes out of some of these movements, some of these cults, but it is a spiritual battle indeed. The blinders are so thick. And once they have successfully fooled you and they've isolated you and they're in full control, they then move to our next point. They seek to drain you. 
like a vampire seeking blood, false prophets are always after something from their followers. In many cases, it's money. In some cases, it's sexual access or abuse. Simply, in other cases, it's about influence and control. And I think a very poignant and potent example of this is the prosperity gospel, which is in fact no gospel at all. Many prosperity teachers and false teachers will tell you that if you simply sow a seed into their ministry, that if you give them some money in faith and you sow that money with faith, that it's going to reap tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold. So what do these people do? That sounds like a great investment plan, does it not? So they hand over the money. But what happens? Can we guess the outcome? We can. That return never comes. That good diagnosis does not get handed down. That situation does not get cleaned up neatly or nicely. And if you think about it, it's honestly such a good con because it can never be falsified. For example, let's say I'm fleecing you all. I'm like, give me money, sow it in faith, and you'll see, you'll see an increase. We'll, just, we'll say a hundredfold. How about that? We'll go crazy. So you all give me your money. I take it and I embezzle it. I do whatever I want with it. I'm, I'm going on G5 jets. I'm flying to Dubai, whatever these false teachers do. And then you come to me and you say, Ryan, where, where's my return? And what can I say to you? It's, re- it's really sad, but what can I say to you? Well, well, you didn't sow it in faith. It wasn't me that mishandled any of these funds. No, it was, it was that you didn't have enough faith in God. And how dare you question me, the one that serves the Lord? It's a horrible and wicked tactic, but it's effective. Essentially, what the false teacher is saying is that it's not my fault, it's yours. And I know personally people who have fallen prey to this, who have been misled, who have been abused. But before we feel too sad for these people, There is a sad reality that we must face in our next observation, not directly from the text, but one I think that needs to be said. False teachers are God's judgment on their adherence. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writing to Timothy says that there will come a time when people will not be able to stomach sound doctrine. And instead of doing that, instead of listening to faithful biblical exegetes, what are they going to do? They're going to heap up for themselves teachers that will tickle that little ear. Because they cannot stomach sound doctrine, because they have no appetite for the things of God, because they simply want the appearance of godliness just like the Pharisees, they accumulate themselves teachers to scratch their itch. Though it is right to feel compassion for these people who have been taken advantage of, however, We must not lose sight that many of these people are indeed getting what they are asking for. Their ears are being tickled. They hear things that make them feel good, that make them feel happy. They never hear of the cost of sin. They never hear of the damnation that follows. But so what if it costs maybe a little bit more than they bargained for? So when we are dealing with these types of people who have been deceived, 
who are warped in false teaching, we must not think them blameless. We must rightly administer the gospel. We cannot let our compassion and our empathy override the need for their Savior. We must give them the tough and hard truth. Their sinful desires and their hatred for the serious teachings of God is what led them to be in that position in the first place. We must view this rightly so that we can give them the true gospel, the only thing that will actually satisfy, the only thing that will take that itch away. And scripture is clear that you and I must rebuke false teachers whenever we have the opportunity to do so. So we've seen how dangerous false teachers, false prophets can be. But then that leads us to a question. How can you and I be aware? How can you and I identify and guard ourselves against these false prophets? Jesus gives us the answer, verse 16. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The simple answer is that, by their fruit. Jesus here says that false prophets will always out themselves. A diseased tree has no hope of producing good and healthy fruit. It is not something that is possible. It's as if a fish was willing itself to fly. It's not going to happen. And as the old saying goes, and I believe it rings true, what walks like a duck, what quacks like a duck is a hippo. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So if we want to identify the false teacher, we simply need to look at their fruit. And notice with me the rhetorical question that Jesus asks about the fruit. You would in no way go to a thorn bush for grapes, nor would you go to thistles for figs. In our modern geography, that would be something like you don't go to a pricker bush for corn or a yucca for grain. Of course you wouldn't do these things. It's foolishness. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. And I fear that the tendency is when we're confronted with these situations as Christians, we kind of start to defend the thorn bush. We say, well, there's a little grape maybe right here, possibly. No, that's not a speck of dirt. It's a grape. We try to find the good in many of these characters However, we must be careful that we are not to be deceived. We must rightly and sharply critique, rebuke, and exhort these false teachers. And we need to pray that in doing so, some of their adherents would see the truth, they would hear the gospel, and they would actually be coming to the full. Now, there is a warning, though, on the flip side. This does not mean we go out heresy hunting all the time. It does not mean we label anyone we disagree with as a false teacher, which I think is a tendency of some of us. 
I believe that there are far too many examples of faithful men who have been lambasted as false teachers for maybe getting an issue incorrect or being on the wrong side of a specific doctrine. Doctrine is very important, as we're going to see in just a second. But I want to give us two examples that we can chew on. The first is this. Recently, I'm sure you have all been in the Christian verse, I don't even know what to call it, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. There's a faithful pastor named Alistair Begg, who I, I love this man. I love his ministry. His books are phenomenal. His preaching is phenomenal. And yet he made a bit of a kerfuffle over the last few weeks, to put it lightly. The story goes that a young, or next, excuse me, an old lady and a grandmother wrote in and asked if it was something of conscience, if it was okay for her to attend her transgender son, daughter, it's so stupid, I can't, their, their wedding. Should they attend this person's wedding? And Alistair, I think, trying to be maybe a bit overly compassionate, said, yes, go ahead. As long as they know where you stand, as long as they know that you're disproving, get them a nice gift, attend the wedding. No, do not attend the wedding. Do not go and give your witness to that union, that unholy, diabolical abomination before the Lord. Do not do that. So now how do we categorize Pastor Beg? Some of us are like, adios, <laughs> see you later. And granted, I understand that. I understand the tendency to do that. But we must be careful that we're not slandering a fellow brother by calling him a false prophet or a false teacher. I think it carried maybe more weight in the Old Testament where false prophets were stoned. So think of it that way. Do I want Alistair to be stoned? Probably not. How about another example? One that I think might hit home for a lot of us, hit home, home for me. Ravi Zacharias. The years of supposedly faithful, biblical apologetics, who I personally, the Lord, used in my life to bring me to salvation. And yet, how did he end his life? What news came out about Mr. Zacharias? He was sexually abusing women. He was telling these women that if they were to come forward, that the souls of millions would be in jeopardy. What blackmail? Convenient. So in the case of Ravi, completely warranted, yes, He's outside of the faith. This is such an egregious sin that goes to such the, the root and heart of the gospel. It's different than getting a doctrine incorrect. This man prayed upon these women. He used his position to extort them, to get what he wanted. So all the observations that we just made, they devour. They seek to isolate. They're bloodthirsty. All of these traits, all of this fruit we can see in Ravi's life, no matter how good of a ministry we thought he had. And this is a warning for you and I. How many of you, don't raise your hand, looked up to Ravi, was blessed by his ministry, and praised the Lord that he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, but it does not change the fact. 
We were duped. So then how do we judge this fruit? How can you and I then look to this fruit and make a good judgment? Well, it's simple. It's by the word of the Lord. There's a saying that I am very fond of. It's orthodoxy leads to orthopy, which leads to orthopraxy, which is a fancy way of saying correct understanding leads to correct thinking, which then leads to correct action. And this is, I believe, what Paul is getting at in his exhortion to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, pay close attention to yourself and your doctrine. Preserve in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Granted, this is in a context of an elder to another elder, but I think this is universally true of all of us. We must pay very close attention to our doctrine. We must study the word so that we can know what is true. We must be good Bereans about what scripture says about specific topics. If we are not, if we are without right doctrine, we will be unable to properly discern the fruits of those who would be potentially false teachers. You and I would have no barometer. We would have no measuring stick to hold up against the acts of the one in question. And this leads me to something rather personal. As many of you know here, I do see a lot of visitors, so getting you up to speed, I am in an elder candidacy here with the church. That means I'm in a testing period to become one of your elders alongside Pastor Micah. However, I have a charge against you You have been far too kind. You have had very few difficult conversations with me about where I stand on doctrinal issues, on where I stand about political issues or personal issues. What do I do in my recreation? What do I believe about the sovereignty of God in salvation? What do I believe about the gifts Am I an egalitarian? Am I a complementarian? Am I a patriarchal? If, these, if you don't know the answers to these questions, I would implore you, please come talk to me. If you have any hesitancy about my candidacy, please go talk to Micah. Make these things known. Ask the hard questions. And this is why I believe Micah has been wise in not accelerating this process with the, the situation that we found ourselves in in November. It is a much worse thing to have an unqualified man in this pulpit or even worse, a false teacher in this pulpit. You will pay for it dearly, I promise you. This is a serious thing. So those of you, if you do not have my contact info, see Micah, see myself, um, see some of the, my friends in the church, the Bachigalupos, the Get Keys. They would be happy to talk to you about who I am and get you in contact with me. So in looking at false teachers, how they are ravenous wolves, how they are deceitful, how they present themselves as harmless and yet are vicious, we've seen that we are to look for their fruit, that we're to test that fruit against the solidity of Scripture. This leads us to our next portion in the teaching, and that is false 
converts. Verses 21 through 23, I'm going to read very quickly. It says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. And what's interesting here is the Greek is kurios, which is the highest form. It's what you would use for Caesar or a ruler. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus continues, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I was incredibly excited to teach on this specific chunk of scripture. Uh, a bit of a fun fact, this is, these are the verses that um, the Lord used in my mother's life to bring her to saving faith. A faithful brother shared with her. And I remember she told me that she was so frightened by these things that she couldn't help but continue listening to what the good news is. What is the good news here? And in, in God's marvelous providence, without knowing my mom's story, these are the same verses that led me to become a believer as well. And to give you a snippet of my testimony, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I'm sure it was uh, very similar to a lot of your upbringings, Christian schools, churches, events, once or twice a week, Christian friends, Christian holidays, everything was Christian. And yet I was not, I was very far from it. And in fact, due to my parents' rearing, how they got me into good Christian schools with good Christian teachers that taught good Christian doctrine. I accumulated for myself a lot of head knowledge to the point where if you were to come to me and ask me about doctrine, about biblical stories, about the, the thread of redemption, I could probably answer and parrot back to you a correct response. But inwardly, I was a Pharisee. I wanted people to look at me in a specific light, rather than studying the Bible to know the deeper things of who my Lord is and how vastly his grace is for me and what he saved me from. The only purpose for my studies was to get A's in school and to be viewed as knowledgeable. And just as it so happened to be the Lord in his providence, most of the men in my life that I looked up to were faithful, solid believers. I wanted to impress them. I wanted them to look at me as good. So I studied the scriptures. <laughs> I studied the Bible despite being completely reprobate. And it wasn't until much later in life, somewhere between 17 and eight year, 18 years old, that I remember I was reading my Bible and I remember coming across this text and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, I remember putting my Bible down and I, that was me. Who Jesus is talking about is me. Heck, I, I haven't prophesied in his name. I haven't casted out demons or done any of these mighty works. And yet, I felt like he was talking to me. The Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the fact that I did not know him and he did not know me. Notice with me in the text quickly as we move forward. There are some things I think that we need to address as we move through and we relate to the false convert. The first is this, we are not universalists. 
Notice with me that the Lord here is indeed denying people entry to the kingdom. There are indeed people who will not be with their maker in eternity. They will be judged and will spend an eternity apart from God in hell. This is a sad and a sobering fact, but it's true. And it's a true doctrine that saved me. And the scripture is clear on the doctrine of hell, which has, ironically enough, come under fire by many false teachers in the last decade or so. But scripture is clear on this issue. I don't have them on the screen. I should have. I apologize. I'll read them twice. Jot these down if you're curious about this doctrine. Revelation 21.8, Matthew 25.46, Psalm 9.17, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, and Jude 1, 7. These are just a few. I'm going to repeat them again. Revelation 21, 8, Matthew 25, 46, Psalm 9, 17, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, and Jude 1, 7. All of these verses either directly reference or infer hell. You cannot get around it. The Bible is clear. The doctrine stands and we must judge it as true because it is true. So if someone comes to us as a teacher and says, look, hell, does anyone really go there? What should be happening in our, in our brains? What alarm bells should be going off? Yes, this man is deceived. There are many false prophets that have twisted this doctrine in order to gain followers. However, there are also many false converts who think the same. They think things like, surely God, in all of his love and mercy, he, he would never do that to me. Or they'll say, surely I have done good things, have I not? I've called upon the Lord. I've attended church services. I have gone and done the rituals. I have said a prayer. My parents were Christian. I go to Sabbath dinners. I I, I go on Wednesday night even. I go twice a week. Imagine that. But the sad reality is, just because you say, Lord, Lord, does not earn you entrance to the kingdom. There is no free pass into heaven. There are no magic words that can be said, nor a special prayer that can be offered that will gain you access to the kingdom of God. The scriptures are clear, and in the text it is clear. It's only the one who does the will of the Father. Very interesting. By show of hands, who here has done God's will perfectly and kept his commandments? Not a hand went up. But then how are you and I saved? How are you and I gaining access to this kingdom? How do you and I approach the throne of grace? Well, because there's one who did this perfectly on our behalf. Scripture is also clear that you and I were broken, we're sinful, we are incapable creatures of saving ourselves. The law of God has exposed us. It leaves us bare in his sight. It shows just how far you and I have missed the mark. But as we learned a few weeks ago, we serve a good God who has made a way for his people to be saved. And the only way is this, for those of you 
who have been washed by Christ's blood, who have repented of your wickedness, who have given, excuse me, who have exercised the faith given to you by Christ in him. Only those who have done this can have access with the Father. Through Christ, he has extended to us his perfect righteousness so that you and I can actually now live a life that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. You and I are accredited as the ones who keep and do the will of the Lord, even though you and I have failed miserably. It's by Christ's work that we are made righteous. But this glorious truth is offensive to the false believer. Why? The false believer, the false convert, secretly loves pointing to their own righteousness. I know I did. We know that the Pharisees did. What is the response of the false convert in verse 22? It's look at all this stuff I did. Look at all these things that I have accrued. Look at the prophecies and the demons and the mighty works. Not one of them is appealing to the work of Christ. And I find it really interesting that the things that they say, these are all things that would be perceived as very spiritual. And you can feel the pride in these words, like they're, they're owed it. The sad reality is this, that the false convert is always putting stock in their own activity rather than the activity of Christ. They're lifting up their own works to save them, but sadly, they are deceived. The New Bible Commentary has a very interesting tidbit on this. It says, false prophets of verse 15 were deceivers, but these are self-deceived. Acceptance depends not on profession, nor even on apparently Christian activity, but on whether Christ knew them. Note the extraordinary authority he assumes as judge. To enter the kingdom of heaven depends on his acknowledgement and consists in being with him. However, it's not just false converts, but all non-Christians that do this. They all put stock in their own work, their own religiosity, their heritage. You and I as Christians must affirm that yes, we are saved by works, but it's not our works. It is the work of Christ alone. Unless you are known by him, unless he died for you, you can have no hope in this life. Just imagine the grief of thinking you are doing the right things, serving the right God to meet Christ on judgment day and he tells you to depart. He tells you, no, I have never known you. You are a worker of lawlessness away from me. Friends, if you make an appeal or point to anything other than Christ for salvation, you are going to be sorely disappointed. All the supposed Christian activity, the good deeds, they mean nothing without Christ. Scripture is clear, and you can find this in Romans 14, that anything not done in faith, meaning faith in Christ, is sin. No matter how good it appears to us to be. This means that any activity, no matter how righteous we perceive it, 
done without an eye to Christ is an abomination to God. We may make pragmatic arguments about how these acts benefit, benefit people, how they reduce suffering, but Scripture says in Isaiah 64 that these good works are like filthy rags. Your pragmatic arguments are not going to save you on the day of judgment. If you, like the false converts, appeal to anything but Christ, you are toast. And you may be here today doing just that. You may be here today going through the Christian motions, believing that your activity, that your holy sweat somehow gives you any type of hearing, any type of perceived righteousness, any type of stock with the Father. And I love you enough to tell you that it does not. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years, for 40 years. It doesn't matter if you've gone to the West Indies, to somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, to dig wells. It does not matter because it is apart from Christ. And I would beg you, I would implore you to drop the facade, to put away the hypocrisy, to truly look to Christ for faith, for repentance, for restitution, for mercy, for grace. As we studied in the hypocritical praying and giving and fasting of the Pharisees, what does Jesus say is their reward? It's earthly. It's temporal. It's from the people around them. It's the false persona that they've built. That's their reward. Not eternity with him. So if this is you, repent. Look to the work of Christ Put down the tools. There's nothing left for you to accomplish. It was all accomplished on Calvary. You cannot add a single thing to what Christ has done. The only thing that you and I bring to our salvation is our sin. Cry out for mercy. Now, quickly, getting to application. I know I'm going a little bit longer than normal. I want to quickly touch on a point that I think verses 21 and 23 brings out and brings into the forefront. Perhaps you are here and you believe and you believe yourself to be a Christian and perhaps other people in your life have also affirmed this to be a fact. However, as you have been listening today, the one question that you keep asking yourself is, how can I know I am truly converted? How can I know that I am not a false convert, that I have not been self-deceived? How can I have assurance that I am known by Christ? This is no doubt a weighty question and one that we want to handle with care for the brother or sister who is wrestling with this. But I have three points that I'd like to give you to encourage you in. The first is this. Do not look to yourself in your work. Do not look to yourself and to your work. There's a saying that a man wrapped up in himself is a small bundle, and I think that is helpful here. When we get so caught up in our works or our performance 
as a Christian, I believe it actually tends us to despair. Because we know that we're sinners. We're flawed. We are going to continually and continually fail and fall short. In our time of confession this morning, no doubt, many thoughts and sins flooded our minds as we repented in the throne room of grace. So instead of looking inwardly at your work, I would commend you, fix your gaze on Christ and his work. Your salvation is not dependent upon your work. It is dependent upon Christ's. He is the one that can be counted on. He is the one that can be relied on. And I would encourage you, the fact that you're even concerned about being a false convert is a good sign in and of itself. But look to Christ. Look for his work. The second one, seeming a dichotomy here, but look for fruit. Yes, I know I just told you not to look to your work, but this is different, I promise. Jesus' own words state that the one who loves me keeps my commandments. You can find that in John 14. And in the same way that we're to look for fruit of the false teacher to point him out and to out him, we're also to take inventory of our own fruit. Not making it dependent on our fruit, but are there any evidences at all? Is there a change? Has the knowledge of Christ and his goodness and of your sin and the repentance that you claim to have, has there been any effect in your life? Do the people who knew you pre-conversion say that you're a different person? Do your family, can somebody vouch for you? Jesus promised us here, a good tree, excuse me, a good tree will produce good fruit. And my encouragement is to you, yes and amen. Eventually, yes, there will be good fruit. As baby Christians, man, we get it so wrong. We mess it up so badly, but our gracious Savior is there with mercy. So do not be discouraged if your tree still seems to be in early spring. They first must grow and then bud and then blossom and then we get our fruit. These things take time, but God promises in Philippians 1.6 that he who has begun a good work into you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that leads me to my third point of encouragement. Remember God's promises. God's very character is on the line here. If he failed to do anything that he promised, such as sealing us with the Holy Spirit, to empower us, to secure our name in the book of life, he would actually cease to be God. He would no longer be God. You can rest assured that every promise God has made, he has kept. And for his children, through Christ, he promises to raise them up in the last day. He promises to stick closer than a brother. He promises to sustain and to provide for us. The question is, do we believe that? So if you're here doubting your assurance, quickly to recap, one, do not look to yourself and to your, to your works. Two, look for fruit. And three, remember God's promises. So take heart, Christian. The Lord indeed goes before you.
Now to close, I have two application points for the general audience. The first one is for children. We have many young, young ones in our congregation. It's a beautiful gift that God has given us. But children, just because your parents are Christians does not mean you are a Christian. Just because your parents bring you to church does not make you a Christian any more as if your parents were to take you to McDonald's that you're a cheeseburger. This must be something that you are known intimately by Christ. There are no Christians via proxy. There are no Christians by osmosis. And now I'm using that word. That's probably a big word for you guys. Just by your vicinity, just by where you are does not make you a Christian. You're only a Christian by Christ's death on your behalf. You are only a Christian by the work that Christ has accomplished for you. You must take hold. You must take stock. You must make that your own. Ask your parents, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be like you? And I promise you, they will gladly give you an answer. The second point of application is for the mature Christians, and it's this. Look for opportunities to be spiritual fathers. We live in a day and age where information seems to run amok, where we almost would seem like we can't really know what's true and what's not, or who is true and who is not. But I think this is an opportunity for us in the congregation if you consider yourself more mature, to look for those that would be weaker or newer to the faith. To be a spiritual father, to be a spiritual mother to this person, to give them care and provision and comfort and guidance. Because the Christian life, yes, his yoke is easy. Yes, his burden is light. But there is still a cost to being a Christian. We see an example of what happens when this doesn't happen, when there is not this pouring into the second generation. You can find that example in the book of Judges. Go read it. See how that turned out. It was a train wreck. And I believe that guarding one another from false teaching, policing our own ranks is going to be one of the most effective ways that we can safeguard and preserve our fellow brother or sister. This gives us an opportunity to bring the erring brother or sister back into the fold, to lovingly call them back into fellowship with us, to turn from the false teachers. But all this assumes you know your Bibles. It assumes you know your doctrine. So I would charge you, look for these opportunities to be spiritual fathers. Diligently read, diligently Search the scriptures so that you would be a bulwark for those that are fading. You would be a means of restoration for those who have faded. And in doing so, you and I, we will act as our heavenly father and how he has treated us. Amen? Amen. So to close, beware of false teachers. Examine their fruit. Use the word of the Lord to judge that fruit. Beware, false convert. Look only to Christ and his goodness and his work on your behalf. Do not appeal to your works, but only 
to the works of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be saved. Lord, we thank you for the true experience of conversion. Lord, those that are struggling with assurance, Father, I pray that you would give them your your hand, that they would feel your presence, Lord, that those in this congregation, that you would give them opportunities to love on these brothers and sisters, that we would build them up in their faith. Lord, I pray for the false converts, that you would show yourself to them the same way that you showed yourself to me. And Lord, those that have been deceived by false teachers, I pray that you would give us opportunities to confront incorrect doctrine, incorrect teaching at any point so that we might win them back to the full. In your son's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.